like one point something. But I put. What you do in the living room? In your house? My bedroom. So I, I handcuffed a briefcase to my hand. Cause I always wanted to do that, right? Are you serious? Or are you joking? Be serious. Wait, wait. Are you serious? Welcome to Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. I'm your host, Andrew Hawkins. I also go by Hawk. Here on Needing Dough, Uninterrupted CEO Maverick Carter sits down with your favorite athletes to talk about how they learn to manage the life-changing amounts of money that becoming a pro athlete can provide. And as a former NFL wide receiver myself, I'm here to bring my personal perspective on how these lessons from legends translate to you in your life. Before we get started with this conversation, featuring NFL brothers Martellus and Michael Bennett, this show is brought to you by Uninterrupted and Chase. Subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. It's free, it helps other people find the show, and it notifies you every time we drop a new episode. Today, our guest is the dynamic sibling duo of Martellus and Michael Bennett. Martellus is a former NFL tight end and Super Bowl champion. He was drafted by the Dallas Cowboys after college and eventually won Super Bowl 51 as a member of the New England Patriots. But his discipline goes beyond sports. As a children's author and an owner of a media company, he's one of the most creative minds the NFL has ever seen. Michael, his older brother, is one of the most feared defensive ends in all of football. After signing as an undrafted free agent to the Seattle Seahawks, he eventually turned himself into a three-time Pro Bowler. Martellus and Michael, who challenge each other both on and off the field, discuss how they've navigated football and finances together. All right, let's sink into this conversation with Maverick and the Bennett Brothers. You guys as an athlete start making the most money at a young age, and you're the best at your job at a young age, and no one's ever talked about that. They're just like, oh, he goes broken. And I always ask people, and for me, for sure, if I made the most money I was ever going to make at 22, I would have fucked it up too. That's very interesting because a lot of athletes are first-generation money. So we never were taught about money or about investment. We never see parents. I, in the black community where we grow up, nobody wants to talk about money. And no one talks about how much money they don't have and how much money they do have. So, and at college, they don't teach you about money or managing money either. So it's like, it's like, hey, here's $3 million. Good Go luck. do it. Yeah. So, and that's a lot of money. If you, and then so you, the people that you would lean on, your parents, they never managed that much money or seen that much money in their life. And your friends, they can't really relate because it's, they don't know what that, you know, they look working regular jobs, you know, at Chase. <laughs> exactly. And so, so Michael, so Michael, let me ask you a question. Obviously, Marty talked about that, but at, at all were finances ever discussed in your household as kids? In my house, we had an opportunity to talk about it, but we never talked about it in depth. We never talked about the, you know, trust and, you know, wills and different ways to, you know, life insurance, different ways to assure that your kids have some kind of um, fallback plan. And, and for us, it was just about, it was never really about sports for us, but we never really had those in-depth conversations, those honest conversations that you need to be able to have to be able to have that background. And I think now with my kids, I try to focus on that and teaching them about, you know, stocks and bonds, different things like that and what we own and, you know, and, and just keeping them updated on what's important. So you're 20 and 22 years old. Here's millions of dollars. How did you learn? How did you even begin to learn? Who do you ask questions? I fucked up all the time. <laughs> but him coming in after, I'm like, oh, don't do that. So you gave him lessons that you've... Well, there was you, some stuff that I did. So, like, say, one of the biggest things that you do that happens to a lot of athletes is that you feel like you owe your parents, which you really don't owe your parents anything, or you feel like you owe the community to help get you to where you are. But really, a lot of the work that you did was you on your own. Like, it's my mom's and dad's job to drop us off at. Like, <laughs> I mean, you brought me in this, you brought me into this, this ruthless world. The one thing you could do is give me a ride to basketball practice, right? You know what I'm saying? It's not like they knew you. It's like, it's not like they were dropping you off knowing he's going to make the NFL one day, so he's going to pay us back. They are doing their job. Yeah, yeah. So, but like, but you want to give back to your parents. You want to get your parents a house. You want them to have a nice car but the one thing I tell him all the time because he likes 
is that everyone can't live the life that you live. Like he deserves, like he deserves a BMW, but just because I have it don't mean that you can have it. Because one, the upkeep of that car is expensive, right? So I learned that the hard way. You know, got my parents a super nice car, and then you know I have to pay for the bill. Like a Jaguar, the cup holder on a Jaguar is like six hundred dollars to get fixed. <laughs> you didn't and that's the cup holder. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, the, wait, the cup holder. No wonder you can't pay for it, mom and dad. You know what I'm saying? I can't pay for it myself. Exactly. A six hundred dollar cup holder, that exactly. shit better ice it, heat it, and <laughs> and pour it for you. But exactly. it's just like it was just like little things like that that I was able to pass on to him. You know, in different conversations, we're able, like, when there's two of us in the league, it's easier for us to have conversations because we're roommates in college, roommates through life. I, I will be roommates through life for the rest of our life because we're connected like that. But um, there's just moments that I could share with him. We could have these conversations. Like, he's invested in something. You know, we play the stock market differently. I'm vanilla. He plays it hard. You know, but. <laughs> and did you guys share notes? Like, I found this stock or I'm looking at this investment. Yeah, did you guys. Trade secrets. Yeah, we talk about investments all the time, of whether it's a, a venture, a venture opportunity to be able to get a whole bunch of guys together to invest in something, real estate opportunities. Um, always run it by him if he wants to take a part in it. How much will it cost to own a percent of it? And so we always are trying to talk about different things to be able to, you know, make sure we have a lot, make a lot of money while we playing. So that way we can have something to fall back on and have opportunities. So we always bounce ideas when it comes to that. Marty, has he ever told you? you to do something you passed on it and you I pass all the time well there's there's things I don't believe in investing in things you're not interested in even if it's a good or you don't know much about so like he's interested in like franchises and he's talking about doing like wing stops in Hawaii but I'm not interested in franchises you know what I'm saying like it's just not something that I, my heart's in it so I wouldn't be a good partner for it you know and now I want my money to be involved in something like that because I'd rather try to make an app or invest my money and try to create something new. Like my biggest risk is on my own ideas. I feel like investing in myself is like the coolest thing I could do. So I try to spend money in my own company making different products and things like that. And I fuck that shit up all the time too. <laughs> but it's just, but I, you live and you learn with those things. But there's things that like he called me the other day and there's this iced tea company that we're in talks to, and I was like, oh, I like that, because then I could see my place in it, because I will handle the branding and, and the advertisement side of it. Like, that's why I could offer you on this. You guys are also both very creative. How did your parents help you foster that creative side, too? I think, well, growing up, one of our punishments was writing stories. Mortos was always better at writing stories, so I was asking for my help when I was punished. But then another thing was we used to have to read encyclopedias, and so we had a lot of time. <laughs> that was punishment? He, that was terrible. He had to, he get, ended up doing more encyclopedia reading than I did. I just wasn't into that shit. <laughs> My mom's a teacher, so all her stuff was creative. Yeah, so everything was creative, and well, those a lot of all of our punishments was like doing extra homework or doing more stuff like that. So, and it got to the point where like, say if I robbed the corner store, right, which I did a lot. You robbed the corner store. Well, not the for money. I stole it. Like candy or something. The, I didn't take the money. I was still candy, and candy. And, and, stuff and you like got that. caught. Once out of like a hundred times. Right? <laughs> but right now, if you go to the, our neighborhood, there's a, only two kids allowed in the store right now at a time, and that's because of me. <laughs> oh, because y'all used to go three and just pull it. I would bring multiple people in there to distract. Yeah, I started doing that with the ice cream truck when I was like 10, and I used to rob the ice not Rob, I used to steal from the ice cream truck. <laughs> Rob is a terrible way to say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I used to steal from the ice cream truck, and what I used to do is tell the kids, I was like, look, I got enough, we have enough money for everybody to get ice cream. And I was like, look, I got a plan. When the ice cream truck stops, all y'all go beat on the truck on the other side. And when he gets out, I would run in, I would get the ice cream, and I would either pocket it or throw it under the truck, right? And then I would buy something, and then he would leave. And when he leave, we would scoop all the ice cream and go. Which was genius, right? Yeah, I think so. Y'all just run around, keep him chasing you. It's genius used in the wrong way, but it's definitely yeah. genius. That happens a lot, though, that right? It happens a lot. If you don't use genius in the wrong way a couple times, then I don't know if you really out there like that, you know? So, you're, but you, you talked about your parents, they, your dad made a lot of sacrifices for you guys as kids, right? And you said he exemplified making my, sacrifices. My mom did too. I think the biggest thing that my parents did for us is that 
they didn't put an emphasis on anything. So like when I had, when I played, I played a symphony growing up. I played trombone and I used to do sight reading competitions. I was a mathlete. But my parents would be at the, my symphony the same way they would be at the football game, right? They would be there the same front row, cheering, great job, make sure I had everything I needed to get. And they would go to the football games and do the same. So for me, it was like football was never more important than band or band was less imperative to my parents because they supported everything we did. So like when we got in, a, Michael's eighth grade, I was in seventh grade, my parents used to go to, because we used to have to play across town. So my mom would go to Michael's game for the first half, my dad would come to mine. Then halftime, they would drive across town and switch games. Wow. So that's how our parents were. And then your dad worked at Enron, right? Yeah, it was fucked up shit. And then, it, <laughs> and then when it collapsed, he lost his job, right? How did that affect you? How did that affect both of you, for both of you? Well, first Christmas so, started to suck. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Christmas I, changed a lot. Huh? Well, Enron Christmases were great. Go-karts, <laughs> remote control cars, best PlayStation. You get one, I get one. What you want? Enron was great. You know, I had Windows. I remember Windows XP came out, and I had Windows XP before my BCIS teacher had it, and she used to. She hated me because of Michael, and uh, he, went he went before me, so she thought I was Michael, but I wasn't. So she didn't even give me a chance to be off in her class she just judged me before I got there based on Michael's doings but I was trying to tell her about Windows XP I was like yeah I got Windows XP it's great it's this new software y'all don't have it at the school yet you should get it because I used to get the stuff from Enron and then post Enron how was it Michael it was just like a different transition. I think we we lived in this place called Kingwood, and then it was just, it was a nice suburb on the. Literally, I was there's two black people in the school, right? When I yeah, and he was one of them. I was the other one. Well, Andrew, there was another kid named Andrew, and when I got there, I come from A Leaf, right? And it's like the, they call it the SWAT, you know. So that's where we come from, and we go to this nice, prestigious white neighborhood where they bike together in the neighborhood. Never seen no shit like that in my life, right? Yeah. You know, they play, they golf together, you know, whatever. So I end up going to, this is just a side story about Kingwood. So I end up playing, I go there to try, I'm trying out for the basketball team, and I was really good basketball player. So at first they was like, oh, we don't have room for you on the A team. So there's an A team and a B team. So they put me on the B team. And I'm like, man, why would they put me on the B team? You know what I'm saying? So I go out on the B team, I score 46 points. And then they put me on the A team. But then I, on the A team, you travel. So we go to different places. And that's how I knew I didn't want to be in Kingwood no more. I had some nice people. I had a friend named Duffy. He was a good kid. <laughs> but, um, but we ended up going to, um, like we used to go to like Subway after the game. And my parents used to give me money to go to Subway. But for some reason, they all thought I was poor, so they like try to give me extra Subway sandwiches to take home to my family. Oh, you can have four or five. Here, you know, here's some chips. Do you want cookies? I'm like, look, look, like, I know I live in Kingwood, but we're doing all right right now. I don't need extra Subway sandwiches to take to my brothers and sisters. Like, it's not what you think. Like, I just look like this, but it's not, you know, so I was just like, man, I don't know about this town. So I was kind of glad when we moved back, but the circumstances weren't, weren't the greatest. Did your dad talk to you about it and like talk about finances and like? No, I think he was, he really tried to guide us from, you know, not being a parent, you know, I was telling my wife the other day, I was like, as a, as a, as a kid, you see your kid, your parents arguing, you think like, I can't believe they're arguing or you see certain things and then when you become a parent, you're like, I understand. Some of the things you want to be able to guide, I mean, guard your kids from, and I think my dad did a good job of, you know, just playing down and, and try to make us just enjoy being a kid and not really worry about what he had to go through. He just, you know, started, he started his own company and he started working and doing his own thing. And I think we were just a part of it. We worked with my dad. He started bidding networking. So my dad does computers. He's an IT guy. My mom's a teacher. So that's why I started making like children, interactive children book apps. It kind of meshes the two together. But I used to, me and Michael used to climb through the ceilings and run the, because before it was wireless internet, you have to run these blue cables to a network hub. So I grew up putting computers together from scratch with my dad. Like I eat, we have Rocky Road, my dad would have a Crown and Coke. <laughs> and, but I always, I always put, I just remember, because I do it with my daughter now. I have Rocky Road, she has a Rocky Road ice cream, but we build robots. So I just kind of continue that tradition because it's something that I always remember, because sitting down with my dad those late nights, just putting computers together and building motherboards and stuff like that, eating ice cream, it was some of the best times, right? And did you guys know then that he was an entrepreneur and like, He's building and running his own company. I think I think those who I recently talked to him like a couple of weeks ago, and we were talking about business and everything. And I think the biggest mistake he ever said was that he didn't continuously chase his dream. I think 
you know, being an entrepreneur, there's the opportunities where it's up and downs. You know, it's, some days it's great, some days it's bad. And, you know, him and my mom being pregnant with my sister, he said that, you know, he needed a steady income. And so he went back to work. But I think, so that was the biggest thing, mistake that he ever did. He wishes that he would have kept doing the entrepreneur thing. So I think him watching Martellus uh, do his entrepreneurship and me, you know, doing my thing, I think he lives through us vicariously. And I think it's super important for us to keep that, that mindset that, you know, if you get an opportunity to create something and you are the business owner and you get a chance to work your schedule and be home with your family I think it's something that we both really love about you know being in business man I think as an entrepreneur I think it's tough right you know it's like especially art like it's subjective like nobody likes your shit you know you make stuff like you pour your heart into it like anything I create is a part of me like I hang out with my characters more than I hang out with the people in the, I guess it would be the real world I, live, I like live in the inter- intersection of, imagine, of imagination and reality, so I don't know what's real and what's fake half the time. I don't know if I made it up. That's <laughs> That's I, I don't know. I don't know. Half the time, I'm like, did I make that up or did it really happen? You know. And my daughter's the same way. So it's like, an artist. That's a true artist. Yeah. Yeah. So like, even like now raising my daughter, I'm raising. I'm not raising a worker bee, right? I'm raising a queen bee, right? So. Um, I teach her like, because football is something I can't, you can't give, right? I, my son, if I have a son, there's no telling he's gonna be six, seven, 270 pounds and strikingly handsome, you know, <laughs> with a mean stiff arm, right? You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it, there's no guarantee, but like creativity and entrepreneurship is something I could teach and give to my kids. They could inherit my company. They can't inherit anything I did on the field. Growing up, it wasn't just about sports for the Bennett brothers. Through their father's own experiences, they learn to look out for other opportunities that they can invest and fall back on. I've mentioned before in this show how influential my grandfather was on me growing up. I remember being a kid and thinking how cool it was that he owned and operated his own business. He was the only person I knew that did. I used to tell my mom how when I grew up, I couldn't wait to travel state to state doing business all over the country like he did. He would always drop me nuggets about life. And he'd say, Andy, which is what he called me growing up. What you're able to take isn't what makes a great legacy. It's what you're able to leave behind. So throughout my whole football career, and even in my business ventures now, the goal was always putting my kids and future grandchildren in a better situation than I was. And for Michael and Martellus, they're building a family legacy that could be carried on for future generations as well. So, and talking about football and chasing dreams, obviously you guys both achieved the goal of playing <clears throat> in the NFL, which is a dream for a lot of people, but you guys achieved it. But Marty, you've talked about before how in Dallas, you thought about retiring after your third year. Yeah. In Dallas, and you talked about something that I thought was very interesting, this demasking period of the Dallas days. What was that, what was going on there? I think it was a couple of things. I think Dallas was my first time really being away from my brother because we played high school, roommates in college, and then I'm on my own. And then, so like when I'm in Dallas, I think it's a, when you play sports, you lose the self-identity a little bit because sports become your identity, right? Because you become the football player, but that's not who you are, but you grow up thinking that you are, especially football because everything's a compromise. So. If you're not if you're not doing what the team wants to do, then you're an individual, and being an individual in sports is frowned upon. Like you're not part of the team, but I don't really understand. Like me not wanting to go see 300 and want to go see 101 Dalmatians is an issue. You know what I'm saying? Like, but you because the whole team was going to see 300, yeah. and you wanted to see 101 Dalmatians. I, would, I mean, I would rather see 101 Dalmatians than 300. I mean, I, we are Sparta. I get it, and you know you. But you're into this other thing, yeah. And there shouldn't be anything wrong with it. Or like you say, you grow up thinking you love hip-hop because the, the culture in the locker room listens to hip-hop all the time, but then you find out, damn, I really love the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I never even knew about these motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> right, like, you know what I'm saying? Nobody played them in the locker room, but like, I really love alternative rock music. Like, yeah. this stuff is great. And then during the demasking phase, I think that there's a part of everyone puts on a mask based on the room that they're in. So if I'm in this room, I want to put on this this face to be this subject so people understand me. Then when I go over here, I put on a different mask and I go on this mask. So I, there's a, a, you wear so many masks that every day is Halloween, you don't know which one is truly you. So I went through a phase where I started really being hyper aware of like what I was doing and who I was around and what image I was trying to put off. During Dallas, I lost a little bit of myself and they were trying to make me be like Jason Witten 
who I'm not like, and he's not a bad guy, you know what I'm saying? It's just I'm a different individual, so I don't really, I didn't really Does that get make it. You resent Jason a little bit? Yeah. Because yeah. they were because they were putting that on you. Yeah. Was it him? He wasn't putting it on nah, you. No, he didn't. No, nah, he didn't. But it made you resent him because of what they were trying to make you be. Yes. So that's when I dived into doing more art. Anytime I feel lost, I go to art or whether, whether it's music. I used to, I was a part of this um, alternative hip hop band actually called the Moonshine Kids. And we used to travel um, and do a lot of While shows. While you were playing? Yeah, when I played in Dallas. Yeah. So I used to travel and do a lot of shows. And I started doing art shows. And I started back skateboarding and rollerblading, and I was just kind of experimenting with. Trying to find yourself and who was, you were and what you liked. Yeah, and I didn't like who they were trying to make me become, so I was like, I felt like I was at a place where it's like, you know what, I'd rather go be who I'm supposed to be instead of try to become what I am and stay here. So I'd rather get out of the NFL right now and be whole as a person than to be separated in many, in many pieces. So that's a good question. Do the business and politics of sport, of any sport, but specifically football, get in the way of what you need to accomplish on and off the field? So I think yeah. politics play, always plays a, uh, a sophisticated role in everything. I think, and especially in the NFL, when everything's about the shield, you have to protect the shield. So while protecting the shield, like my brother said, you, you kind of start to lose yourself. And so there's this big journey within you, within you to continuously be you. And I think that's one of the hardest things to do while you play a sport. And then when you be try to do business and you're doing business opportunity, they'll, they'll tell you, can you cut back because we need you to do more? And do You need to spend more time watching film or you need to do more of this or because we need this from you. But at some, at some point in time, you got to break that relationship between the athlete of you and then this business part of you. And so that's one of the hardest things to do and I think we've both done a great job of doing that we do our job when we're on the football field and I think to get to a place where you are not taking football home with you or taking that sport home with you it makes your life a lot better because when you are taking the losses and the once you, you can when you take the highs and the championships with you you also take the losses home too so you got to be able to find that equal balance when you're at home to be there to be present i mean the thing my ultimate goal every day is to be present in that moment so if i'm with my wife i'm to be present there for my brother to be present and so while you play football it's kind of hard to do that sometime and so over the years I've done a great job of being able to 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 develop that and I think um, now with business we're doing that too now when we're in the business world we we living in that moment we talk about the issues with the business where we was happening the investment how much money we're going to put in what's the chances of us losing you know what's the business plan we're doing all that now to be able to be present in that moment do you guys think about do you think about Michael as you said the coaches, the GM is telling you, listen, Michael, do you mind not doing so much of your own endeavors and, do, and be more present in the meetings and do more film? But do you think about it? Or do you tell them, hey, listen, man, I got a short window as a player and I got to I got to maximize that window. And do you think about that? I think about that all the time because I look at a tree sometime and sometimes a tree <laughs> takes 500 years before it matures and a human's lifespan is really short in the, long, in the grand span of all the things that are on the planet. And so it's like, how do you manage your time and be able to, you know, do the do what's best for you? And while you're playing football in the actuality of the world, when you have to work, you don't need 12 hours to watch film that many times to go over the same thing. It's like we go over the same thing every single day and hard and it's the same thing and sometimes that's that's the battle is to not is to not fall into that trap of just being complacent with that and so while being able to find ways that work to use your time and to not compromise yourself as much as you used to to use your time in a positive way whether it's businesses where it's art whether it's writing whether whatever it is just find those times at work where because there's so many we have so many breaks we have an hour lunch break an hour between meetings and so using those times to take on meetings people get mad at me because they say that I use the workplace like my business office because I'm oh, you have meetings that I have, meetings I, have, I have meetings every single day at work from all the time whether it's you know, with, with my, <laughs> Bill Belichick and all that. No, no he wouldn't no he wouldn't no, no so whether it's with my lawyer whether it's with my business partner you know, I just have any, I mean I have meetings at the facility what what's the best place to do it it's free lunch you know and they get the ambiance of work and it's just a cool place to be able because they are people 
people at the end of the day, people are, are sports fans, and to be able to be in the audience with a lot of people who are, you know, all the players that they look up to is really cool. And to have meetings in at the time of this only hour a day, the other time I'll be using the hour looking at Instagram. The worst thing I hate is seeing people at work looking at Instagram all day. I get I go through the, the people's the young people's locker and I take their phone out their hand and put a book in their hand. People, I have a library of books in my locker. I take them like giving the guys all the time because it's like stop wasting your time on looking at that stuff every single day. It's just all the devil. Day. It's just the devil. <laughs> I tell people this all the time. This is a little perspective too on that. The average NFL career is three and a half years. The average lifespan is 72 years. And that being said, you always hear sports fans always hear like, oh, it's a business. Football is a business. Basketball, the NBA is a business. The NFL is a business. Like, what do people, what do they mean when they say that? Like, what are they talking about? It is a business. It's a ruthless business, too. I think we, like, we're young. Like, a lot of players are young. But I think we probably have the most pressure on the job ever because every single year there's another 6'7", 270-strikely ha handsome guy with a, <laughs> mean stiff stiff arm, <laughs> with a mean stiff arm that's coming to take your spot. So, like, you start off young and you're the lion and there's a gazelle. So every single day, the older players are, are the gazelles. So we, we wake up and we chase the gazelle, hoping we could get a catch and pass them up and take their position. But once you get to that position, you become the gazelle. <laughs> of course. And that's why uh, the Seahawks, and we've done a great job as players and leaders in the organization, is, is, is to build those bridges between the organization and the players. So giving those players those, those factors, those, the ability to bring in people who are about bacon, about you know, trust, and bringing in about wills, and bringing in people who you know, specialize in real estate. So we can give guys an honest um, educational experience you know, during the season. And we try to do that so much because we want guys to have those opportunities to be able to meet and find people to pitch, whether it's venture capitalists coming in or people with tech companies. It's just we bring those people in. It's, it's a really great place to work in. And I think when you have an environment like that, guys tend to develop things a lot faster. And, and, now, I, in, this, in, the, in the world of sport, when does it become a business? Because, Michael, you've obviously said college players should be played. I'm from Ohio, a state where – you can go to a high school game like you guys can in Texas. You're from Texas. It could be 30,000 people in the stands for a high school game. I think that everybody else knows it's a business besides the athletes. That's what I was going to ask. When, do the player, so when should I, the players know it's a business? They should know right away because every player is an entrepreneur and we're a consultant. Like people are like, oh, you play for a lot of teams. And because my job is to consult the tight end position. Once you're done with that, you don't need me to consult at that position for you. I have to go find a new team that needs me to consult until I can no longer consult at what I do. You know what I'm saying? So every single day I have to improve my, every year I got to improve my product just in case somebody else needs me to come in and consult at the tight end position. It's the same thing for defense ends. Yeah. Everybody's an entrepreneur. You're a one-man contract to go out there and perform at a high level. But I think most players miss it because they love playing football. And it's good doing what you love, but it's better to get paid doing what of you course, love, right? Of course, of course, of course. Like, 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 but, like, football's fun. Getting a check? <laughs> Next week, you're like, damn, man, my back hurt. Then Wednesday comes, yes. that's the check day. You know, they put it in your locker. And, you know, you like to look at it. So in the NFL, everybody gets a check in their locker. Do they direct deposit the money or do you take the they, check? You get I, I take check. He takes checks. Oh, you don't get direct deposit. You take a real check. I, because what I do, I don't I, I keep my checks to the end of the season to make sure I don't spend any money. Oh, that's, and a, then that's at the end a great of the season, way to say. I, de I deposit it, and that's the way I like doing it. That way, it makes, it makes sure. him feel richer. That's why he does it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just be honest. Whatever well, works, works for you. Takes it at the end of the year, like, oh, this is my reward. <laughs> yes. And so you live off of last year's checks. The, like maybe like five years ago, probably. Oh wow. Five or six years. So live off that. Live off what I made a long time ago. But just keep it to just so you don't spend it and looking for what's the next investment. I just try not to go broke. <laughs> How do you do that? I have some of the greatest ideas in the world. It's just expensive though. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, so I take a. I have always have a percentage of my contract that's just for me to experiment with business. So every single year, that's what. Because I don't really buy anything. Like I don't. Like, I don't buy my car guy, I own my house, I own everything, so I haven't paid, like, anything besides for, like, the last four years, so I own everything. I own my car, my house, I don't need, I get to a point, the point in life where you don't really need much. So, so Marty, you were talking about as you get checks, you know in your head, this is budgeted for me to go be an entrepreneur, and then also, is there anything that you took part of that money and put it in and it was a complete failure, and how, what did you feel about that? Well... Um, well, I started Imagination Agency, my daughter's about to be four, so it was about four years ago. So 
when I had my daughter was being born, and the first thought I had was like, what would her dreams be, right? And when I started thinking about her dreams, I started thinking about my own dreams from my childhood. So I started thinking like, when she gets older, I would tell her that all the cliche stuff that you tell your kids, you could be anything you want to be. The world is your oyster. I, don't, I still don't know what that means. But um, so then I was like, but how can I tell her that she could be anything in the world that she want to be if I never go out there and try to be all the things that I ever wanted to be? So like for me as a parent, the number one thing I could do is live, live by example. So. But like, so when I started the company, it was because I wanted to show her that anything was possible. The first thing I did was, I was like, I always want to make an animated film. So I'm gonna make this movie. And I, just, and I never went to school to make movies or anything like that. So I, got, I went to the Googles. And, <laughs> and then I started buying all these books. And I started reading all these books about animation. And I started back drawing. And I started making all this different stuff. And then kept reading. Then I started watching all the films. And I, call, I have what you call divine mentors basically people who are dead, but they leave a lot of information around, like through videos and stuff. So they were my teachers as well. So I would listen to Walt Disney talk or like Ed Catmull um, at Pixar. So I, the first thing I do, I make this movie called Zuvi, a warm and fuzzy tale, right? And you and you financed your whole, the whole thing yourself? Yeah, I directed it, I wrote it, I did a voice in it. I found the voice actors and went through that process. The music, because I write music too, so I write music for um, my films and stuff like that, or I work with friends that make music and I kind of produce it and work around it like that. So I just started, I made this movie. Actually, I hate it, but it's good, it's good but I hate it because there's so much shit I did wrong. The movie's 26 minutes long, which is not a short film or a long film. <laughs> it's like, where, <laughs> where does it even live, right? It's like, goddamn, I spent all this money how making it. How much did it cost you to make the movie? A couple hundred grand. How old were you? How old was I when I did this? Yeah. This was 26. 26. So I made, but it's, it's actually, it's not bad film. It's just stupid. It's just like, <laughs> the movie's good. Do you regret the investment? No, I love it because there's like, so when I, go, I went and pitched something to DreamWorks, a cartoon network and stuff, and then when I go in the room, they're always surprised how much I know about the process. And I always tell them, like, my pitches, I'm gonna give this away, because I've done it at almost every studio now. <laughs> so my pitches, look, you could go get your kid from Cal Arts, Cal Berkeley, they, they will, they may or may not make you a good cartoon. I'm not interested in making good cartoons. I'm interested in building franchises. So you, Michael, you obviously talked about budgeting too and saving your checks. Was budgeting something you learned in the league or were you guys instilled that growing up? Did like someone teach you about saving and budgeting growing up? I, I was, as a kid, I always tried to save my money a lot. And then, so now, uh, I really kind of learned it more in the NFL because it was like growing up, you didn't have that much money where it was even worth budgeting. And so it's like, uh, but as a kid, I always works. Like I had different jobs. I used to save my money and then buy me and my brother's school clothes. Yeah, <laughs> it was funny because Michael, I never had a job. Like, football was my first time ever working for somebody else. But Michael used to get the job, yeah. and he used to buy our clothes, and I said, I'm just getting good at basketball so I could get our shoes. Yeah. So that was our deal. So I would travel playing basketball somewhere. Get so sneakers. Get the sneakers. sneakers. I just buy the clothes. You I buy the work. clothes from the job you worked. Yeah, I worked at, uh, worked at a water park, a uh, grocery store. Um, <laughs> that grocery store is cool. Um, I worked at, I was a lifeguard for most of, most of the time I was a lifeguard for four years. Being a lifeguard in the black community is a, a big job. It's not a whole lot of people swimming in the deep end, so. They are swimming in the deep end, but they, they should be. be. You yeah. can't keep jumping up for so long, bro. Like, oh, man. So you learned how to budget as a kid. Yeah, I would Before. save my money a lot of times because I used to save it for the summertime. And, and, and luckily, what my journey to the NFL was different from Martello. So he got drafted in the second round, and I went undrafted. So I had to be tight from the beginning. So I think um, being in that situation kind of made me more aware, and because I never knew what was going to happen. Like for my first three years, I lived in a hotel. Like I would live in a hotel to save money. To save money, and plus I didn't. It was so you know the first time I, the first mistake, the biggest mistake I ever made in the NFL was that I made a team at the Seattle Seahawks. I went and got in a townhouse. I bought furniture. I uh, had my uh, my wife come up to uh, Seattle, um, and the next day, like two, three days later, I got cut. 
And so and now you got this house and all this well, stuff. I was losing rent and I yeah. couldn't get none of my money back. So I, I was like, I had got twenty thousand. Like, oh my god, twenty thousand dollars! I can't believe this shit. This is a lot of money. <laughs> and you know what I'm saying? And so I used everything because I was trying to be responsible, like make sure my wife had a place to live and do all that kind of stuff. And then I got cut, and, and it was like that was my first time learning about contracts and that once you sign the paper, is no really getting any of that back. So I got cut. I couldn't. I couldn't uh, get my rent back for the year. I couldn't do anything. It was just like I just, I just lost it. And so from then on, I never wanted that mistake to happen. This, this you never wanted to be tied. I never wanted to be tied down to a city that I didn't that I didn't live in. And that's the reason why I moved. I didn't live in Seattle because I was just like, at any moment it could be the last moment. And I'll tell you something funny about Michael. <laughs> so <laughs> I go to Tampa. Michael's playing for the Buccaneers, and I go to Tampa and. <clears throat> And I'm like, all right, me and my wife go down there. We're going down, we're staying with Michael, and we're on an air mattress. I'm like, shit, why I gotta sleep on an air mattress? <laughs> my back hurt, you know, like sleeping on, it's the same back that's hurting from football. Now hurts from sleeping on my brother's air mattress. So, like, that's like five years ago. So Michael calls me, I'm like, bro, look, there's this mattress. It's the best mattress in the world. It costs like, a good mattress is like $18,000 or some shit like that. Like the good, but I was like, bro, your sleep matters because you play sports. Yeah. So get you a good mattress. And Michael's like, nah, he never got a good mattress. And then one day he called me, he's like, hey bro, I bought that mattress and it's the best thing ever. <laughs> so, so it took him a long time. How long did it take you to buy that mattress? Well, my, I, I didn't buy, I bought, uh, mine was like six or 7,000. <laughs> I'm so, my wife always says that, you know, I'm, I'm like, so methodical in my my moves and stuff because I feel like you only have so many opportunities to not and, and especially as an athlete and some things you can bounce back from like you know if you're an athlete and you make and you made fifty million you could bounce back from a from a million dollar mistake but if you you know if you only made like seven million and you lose a million that's a hard thing to come back so you know you got to be able to make sure you're making the right decisions and so I take a little time before I make every decision. For Martellus, he wanted to explore other parts of his identity not just as an athlete. For Michael, he learned so much from his past mistakes that he developed a frugal habit. Every day we face these challenges, even after thinking we made it. Curious to know how they spent their first NFL paychecks? That's coming up after the break. And we're back. Let's continue this conversation with Michael and Martellus Bennett. When you first got in the league, you were undrafted free, so you had to fight your way onto a roster. Yeah. But then eventually you became a pro bowler, and yeah. it was great, and you got a big contract. What was the first thing you bought when you had that first big, big check? I bought my parents' house. That was the first thing you did. Which I told him not to do. I told him but that. But wait, he had been in the league for a while already. He didn't yeah. bought them a house yet? No. <laughs> I told him, like, why not? I couldn't afford one. Oh. Uh-huh. But... It's a different. So they had a jag, a nice jag with no house. They, they had a house that we grew up in. Oh, but just, the thing is, like, there's sometimes you could buy stuff, but that don't mean you could afford it. If of that course, makes, that makes sense. So, yeah. but I told Michael the same thing that he just told you before. He got ready to buy my parents a house, and I told him, I said, don't do it yet. Get yourself a house first, because if something happens, they come stay with you. Well, he won't have a. If he gets cut or he loses his money, where well, he he about to go stay with our parents. But if he secures his own place. And he does that first, and then you could go get the, our parents' a house because it's like, all right, let's go in on how much you want to spend on the parents' house or whatever. But I was like, get your house first and then get their house. But Michael's, he's a very unselfish person. Not saying that it's selfish, I just thought that for me that made sense. Like, my parents are okay in the house that they're in, like, they're fine there, right? But I don't have a permanent place for me and. Well, too, for me. So you bought your parents' house before you bought yourself. I house. bought my parents and my my um, wife's parents' house before I bought myself a house. But before it was because I was unsettled in where I wanted to live. Like oh, yeah. I would one you week I'd be Hawaii, yeah, yeah I'd be one week I'd be like I want to live in in Texas and you know, and then I wasn't sure where I wanted to live at and I felt like where I wanted to live at it had to it had to attach to my spirit and I think the places where I was living in Texas and I lived in Seattle, those places didn't really attach to my spirit in Florida. And so I never really felt like attached to those places. And so at the time I was just living in Seattle and I just wanted to make sure that my parents had a place. And, 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 and so we did that in my wife's, my yeah. wife's family. And so, and it was a blessing to be able no, to be in that situation. No, now for you guys, you said you bought your parents' house. Did you guys no, split did. it? I pitched in. You pitched in. Now, when there's an issue with the family financially, do they call both of you or do you split it? Do they just call him and then he calls you or do you just handle it? 
That's what Because you're depends. the oldest. This depends. Sometimes if it's, most of the time you say no, but if it's like something dire, like my mom really needed a car, so my brother bought my mom a car. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, and so my car. dad needed a car really bad, so I just went and bought my car. It wasn't it wasn't a big issue, but at the so same. So do they call you? No, she didn't call me. She I called found me. out through my sister because my my sister had said something. She my, we have a little sister, and and I was like she couldn't get somewhere because of a car or something. I was like, what happened to the car? And she was like, well, the one car's in the shop and mom's car's not working. I was like, well, shit, y'all need a car. So like when I went, I bought them a car and I just had it shipped to the house, and it just popped up out of nowhere. Yeah. Like, you don't want your parents to struggle with a car, because my, my mom won't really ask for anything, right? So she won't, like, I don't really think my mom ever asked us for, she never asked us for anything. You know what I'm saying? Like, she never really asked. But so, like, those situations, like, well, shit, here's a brand new car right here, like. And so, Marty, for you, when you first signed your contract, what was the first big splurge you made? Was there something big that you bought that you were like, I got to have this? I cashed my check and I threw it up. All the cash? I slept in the money. All the money? How much was it? Like one point something. But I put it. What are you doing in the living room? In your house? My bedroom. So I, I handcuffed a briefcase to my hand. Because I always wanted to do that, right? Are you serious or are you joking? I'm serious. Wait, wait. Are you serious? Yeah, I'm serious. What did you do? I got a, a still, like the great briefcases from the movies. Like the million dollar man suitcase. Yeah, and the handcuff. And how much was in the suitcase? A lot, right? One point one million. It wasn't. It wasn't that much, but it was a good chunk of money. Like I found twenty dollar bills like two two weeks later. I did. I only had it one he's day. Serious, Michael. He's I serious. Right, I took it right. Back. Let me ask you, Michael. Cause I mean, is he I serious? Took it right back to the, I took it right back to the bank the next so day. So you walked out of the bank with a handcuff and a briefcase. Yep. Is there anything that you bought that you splurge and you look back on now and go like, damn, that was dumb as hell? I think. The one dumb thing I did I never remember I never forget is besides the briefcase thing, but I didn't spend that money. Um, there's this whole idea of like, I'm rich, I'm gonna I'm not gonna pack any bags, I'm gonna shop when I land, right? <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> So I get this call from Vince Young, right? Vince Young is like, hey, come to New York. Uh, P. Diddy's having this party. I'm like, damn, P. Diddy's having a party. I had never, I'm like, first, first of all, let's say we should never take any financial advice from Vince. Saying, I mean, that's very true. I'm just yeah. saying, though. So, Vince Young gets me up. He's like, come to New York. Diddy's having a party, and you should come to the party with Diddy. I've never party with Diddy before in my life. Like, so it's like one of those things. A Diddy party is ridiculously cool, right? So, and my little brother lived with me. We have a little brother named Rashad. He lived with me. He worked at the Pest Mart. He was driving my <laughs> big, driving my BMW and working at Pest Mart. He's driving your BMW to Pest Mart. <laughs> Everybody at Best Bar used to hate on him, right? Like, he's like, why are you driving a BMW and picking up dog poop, right? So, so I go, so I wake up, I get this call, and he was like, I'm like, look, he's like, I gotta go to work. He's like, I was like, where you going? So I'm gonna go to work. I'm literally sitting on the stairs. I'm like, bro, you should come with me to New York. I said, you wanna go to PetSmart and pick up German Shepherd shit, or you wanna go to New York? And party with Diddy. And he was like, and he was, it wasn't for him. He was like, oh, I should go to work. It's like, bro, I'm gonna tell you one more time. Do you want to go to PetSmart? And this time I said Cocker Spaniel shit. You want to go to PetSmart and pick up Cocker Spaniel shit? Or do you want to go to New York and party with Diddy? I had to persuade him, right? So he goes, I'm like, oh, we're not packing bags. We're gonna go to the airport right now. So we went straight to the airport with no tickets. I bought tickets at the airport. And I'm like, we can just buy clothes when we land, right? So we fly to there, then had to find the hotel. There was no hotels available. Then we end up staying at this, I think it was the London, is that a hotel called the London? Yeah. So we end up staying at the two rooms, two king suites, like, you know what I'm saying, ice cream every day. Um, Macaulay Coffee. Really, type. Macaulay Coffee. <laughs> ah! <laughs> all that, all that, right? So, Get there, we shopping. Every single day I had to buy an outfit for the morning and for the evening, you know, like that type of thing. And so we party with Diddy. It turns out to be his, his son's birthday party. And not just <laughs> <laughs> oh, but you look great. Oh, man. And we end up being there a little bit longer than we're supposed to be because it's just like, this is great, you know. We get back probably like four days later or something like that. And... <clears throat> We land, and my brother's like, all right, I'm still on schedule for Tuesday. He works on Tuesdays. They go to work, and he's like, oh, you, you, it's fine. You don't have to come back in. <laughs> You're fired. They fired you. Yeah, so I ended up hiring him for my company, though. Oh, nice. So, but Michael, so 
obviously that's a crazy story and, and obviously young athletes do things like yeah, this yeah, all of them but now in the position that you're in now you you've educated yourself you've read you've learned the lessons from your brother what are some of the tips you would give young athletes about budgeting now as they come into the league out of college at this young age i think i think for young athletes i would tell them about investments i think a lot of times with investments they see it as now and an investments for the future and so you know getting them caught up whether it's real estate whether it's stocks whether it's life insurances or whatever it is annuities being able to understand that that money is, is supposed to take it's supposed to grow compound interest so being able to talk to young people about compound interest is something that i talk mm -hmm. to a lot of athletes about and it's like something that they don't really understand until you start you know until you start telling them it's the greatest thing in the world to be sitting home and look at and and to get a check from somewhere or look at your stock and see it jump exponentially every week or every year and it's uh, it's just something that's what I would talk to them about. I mean, for the first, the first thing I did when I got one my 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 first one of my signing bonuses is that I bought a, a two million dollar policy for life insurance and, and to be able to pull away from it later on in life, you know, from whole life or whatever. And um, and so that was one of the first things that I did just to make sure that if nothing else happened, this this money this would be there. put away regardless of what happened. But you don't even know about life insurance at first. No, of course. Life when insurance a will at twenty. Yeah. I remember calling my brother like, hey, I'm put you on a will. <laughs> you, get, you know, you got to take care of him. He's the same thing to me. I'm like, it's crazy. We're talking about dying. But you got to, there's something that is, you, you got to be planned for, but like, for. we never knew, like, life Nobody insurance. tells you about it. Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. Now, Michael's like in Seattle, you guys have an older team. You guys have won. The whole defense has gotten paid. You guys all deserve it, obviously. But it, are those lessons that you guys talk to the younger guys about as they enter yeah. the locker room? Do you I make it a point to have these conversations? Well, we have those kind of conversations constantly because people they see us moving in and out they see the people because we live in seattle so being in seattle is is a rare it's like it's a rare thing because it's like living in plan for the golden state you know i was reading kevin durant in uh, fast company and he was talking about oh was it, it was the ink of fast company but he was talking about both yeah about his jealous. experience about living in in um in uh san francisco and being able to get all those investments and advice and all the thing we was talking to will i am and will will was telling us the same thing but being in seattle you have that same opportunity to be able whether it's Expedia whether it's Amazon Microsoft you get in, in into venture capitalists you get all these opportunities to have conversations with people who want to teach you about investments and and that's the coolest thing about being in Seattle and I think we bring those people in and we have those people talk to our young guys and and all those, all they want to do is to have that experience with the athlete and they also want to see us protected location matters a lot location like, does matter because in, you're in Florida, Green Bay yeah you're not getting that now do you know have you noticed since you entered the league, did that conversation become different? So when you first entered, was some of the older guys doing that for you? No, or is, I, or is there a lot more was business? Albert Hainsworth, so it was no. It was like, uh, <laughs> and so, but being with Albert for me was like it was to be able to live through somebody vicariously through their mistakes and to be able to talk to him and be like, man, I'm I fucked up on this much money and I shouldn't have done that or. And did he talk you through it? He talked to me about a lot of stuff. It was before I was before I was I was just a young player of and course. I was coming up and I would I would sit there and talk to him and him and Rondé Barber and to hear uh, the mistakes that he made and then some of the things that he did great and he would tell me like, hey man, don't ever do this, don't ever do power of attorney, don't ever do this or don't buy a yacht or you know don't buy these certain things because they come with maintenance or or you buy this house over here you got paid in property tax make sure you find a place that the property tax is not too high which and, i did not know you could negotiate your property tax down really yeah you can yeah. I, i'm in the process of doing it now but that's a good thing <laughs> marty you talked about that earlier when you're learning about money the one of the main issues you learn is with money you can buy things whatever those things you like you can start a company you can buy a house you can buy a boat a plane a car this but then those things have upkeep and maintenance. Yeah. The number one thing I learned about money is money make you more of what you already are. Yeah. If you like drugs, you're going to get the best drugs, right? If you like cars, you're going to get the best cars. You like the food, you're going to eat at the best places in the world. Like, whatever it is that you like, it enhances that. Whatever you're into. Whatever you're into. For the Bennett brothers, they want to teach rookies and community youth about expanding themselves to explore creativity, to learn and understand how to manage finances, and to stand up for their values. For me personally, it was such a hard track for me to even sniff an opportunity to play in the NFL that I felt like if I was indeed able to make this dream that could change my life a reality, it was my responsibility to use that platform to help change others' lives as well. In my mind, 
getting paid to do something I love was such a blessing that it almost seemed unfair. And early on, I found myself feeling guilty almost. But then it clicked for me. I needed to use that gut feeling to lean into what I thought was right for me. So I started spending off days volunteering at food banks, organizing charity drives, started holiday initiatives for people in need, and began speaking out on social justice issues that affected my community. I was letting my identity as a person lead. And to my surprise, paying it forward made my NFL experience that much more satisfying and became some of the proudest moments of my career. For Michael and Martellus, they want to take a more active role in their communities and show others how to learn different skill sets. They want to create new opportunities. And it circles back to what they referred to earlier about building the foundation for legacies. And let me ask you this, is there one, is there one thing that for both of you that was a habit that you did before you had money that you keep doing now even though you have money, like a broke habit? Um, no. <laughs> no, I don't want to have no broke habits, honestly. You want to, you want to feel I rich. Want to, I work rich. Not that I want to feel rich, but I just want. I do want to feel rich, honestly. <laughs> I ain't gonna lie. That's like for me, rich is like like one day the other. Like it was like it was a Wednesday afternoon, right? And and I walk in my dog, and I'm reading a book. I have a standard poodle named Wednesday after Wednesday Adams, and as a standard poodle, I'm walking through this neighborhood, and everybody else is at work, right? But I'm at home walking my standard poodle, who's a, a weird color, which costs extra to get. And I'm reading a book while walking her, and she's trained. Like I tell her to stop, she stops, right? Which nothing's worse than an untrained dog, right? <laughs> but then I get home, and this is when I felt the riches right now. It's like Tuesday afternoon, and I'm roasting s'mores on my balcony with my daughter. <laughs> Just cause, it's like, let's go run some s'mores. That's some rich shit. Also, but why is it also important to put your money where your mouth is to help people too for you I guys? Think, I think, for me, it's one of those things where, you know, I'm literally standing on my ancestors' shoulders. Tell them what you do though. Uh, well, of the, course, the, Michael, you also took all your endorsement money. No, he's talking about like, so for me, like, for like, on a Friday, like I spend time with the juvenile detention center, or I spend time in, in Seattle. Yeah, or I spend time in Native American reservations and finding ways. Or I'm always in the inner cities, and I'm always finding ways. I bring kids every week to practice from all over of Seattle. I spend do stuff in Haiti, got a school in in Africa, um, and do stuff in Houston after school programs and Hawaii. I do the after school feeding kids program, and then I got um, two programs with the just doing a deal with the state of Hawaii to you know do the children's education because. For uh, for food and nutrition, so I focus a lot on food and nutrition and do a lot of stuff with Black Lives Matter in school and giving opportunities to kids like that. The community gardens, community gardens. I got a lot of community gardens in Seattle and Hawaii, and in the and in the detention centers for kids. And um, so for me, it's about it's always been about you know building that bridge between you know where I've been and where I'm going. And so I want to be able to bring those kids with me. And I and I, and I think too with the organizations like I talked when the first time I ever sat down with Seattle and I explained to Seattle, I was like, the Seahawks, I said, we are Seattle Seahawks, but we've never been to Seattle. We've never been to the CD. We've never been to Rainier Valley. We've never you talked to, to the team, to the team or the, 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 the people who run the team? The people who run the team. Okay. And I said, it's our job to be to show those people that we care about them. And for me, that's what it's about. It's about being in this situation and being in this platform and showing the kids that, that we haven't forgot. As much as we love you know, nice things and we love to be in commercials and selling kids stuff, it's also an opportunity to sell them, um, give them the opportunities and continuously to build those bridges. So every day, that's, that's my goal. And it's... That's the thing I live by, and I think my brother, you know, he does the same thing and through his own different way, and and I, and and that's the whole thing I had to learn between philanthropy and activism, and so philanthropy is this this idea where you give money to causes that everybody believes in, you know, cancer and, and doing things like that, you know, people, everybody's affected by breast cancer and different things, issues that we all affected by, but activism is this is something that the issues that people don't want to speak speak out about, like. You know, being a man and speaking out on women's women's right issues, or being you know a black man and get into the situation in the NFL and talking about Black Lives Matter and police brutality, or being a, a being a father of girls and also standing up for every issue when it comes to sexual harassment and sexual abuse and speaking on domestic violence. So, and, and being my brother, being the same thing yeah. and, and doing all these different things, I think is super important. It's the essence of everything that we're supposed to be as a human being. Our 
job as a human being is supposed to help other human beings. It's not only when catastrophes happen, like if you look at, you know, Houston, when this catastrophe happens, everybody's coming to help each other. But what about the daily, you know, daily time. interaction? And that's the whole thing is to show people that they have value regardless of their gender, their color, their sexuality, you know, their religion. It's about bringing those people together and giving them a sense of, you know, sense of hope. And I think that's what I think our job as athletes is to do, is to not to forget that. And we are the people that we are products and people love watching us. We always, you know, in front of the camera. And when we, most of the time we get in there, our conversations are controlled. So when we start to speak about different things, you're like, wait, hold up, hold up, don't say that about that. But it's our job to yeah, do that. It's our job is to be great citizens. So like, my thing is like, I mean, sometimes I feel bad about talking about what I do compared to what he do, but I feel like, <laughs> I think everything matters. So. Like, I never wanted to go back to my community and do a football camp, right? That's low-hanging fruit, right? Yep. So for what I do is, everything I do is art-based. So like right now, I'm working on curriculum to teach kids in underserved communities how to code, because I believe that coding is going to be the future blue-collar job. So I'll do stuff where they'll, like we're working on um, coding camps and film camps. So like you have people come in and teach kids how to make films and how to grow things so they can learn how to do art, because I feel like as a black kid growing up, there wasn't a lot of people that looked like us that did it, so you didn't really know that you could do it. So I just want to put many examples in front of them that shows them that this is a possibility too. No longer do you have to dribble a ball or catch a ball to get out of this situation. You could do it through art, band, music. Like all the kids want to rap, but they never think about scoring films, right? And those kids are super talented with music, but they just don't, they never been introduced to the idea of scoring a film. They don't know that they can do it. Right? And then when I go to these campuses, like DreamWorks or wherever it is, tech campuses, there's not many people that look like me, you know what I'm saying? So for me, it's my job to raise young creators because those people, those kids have to have, give them access to be creative so they could create a future for themselves instead of just only being able to deal with the future that someone else created for them. But I think too, for me, the biggest letdown this year was, was the companies, I think, I think, you know, whenever, you know, I wanted companies to find a way to invest through athletes, but in a, in a nuisance of way. And I felt like companies did. When you say companies, you mean like NFL sponsors? No, or? like sponsors in Chase or whoever it is or whatever sponsors these big organizations, these companies. I feel like the way that I wanted to do it was through organic leadership, you know what I'm saying? There is this political way of doing stuff, but it's such a disconnect from the actual people. And, and, and I wanted to be a leader. Like I work with Microsoft doing different stuff and helping them do diversity and working with Nike doing different things but I feel like the companies they wouldn't invest in young people like me who wanted to do different things but they would invest in like you know a guy who would you know throw a Dorito through a hoop or something but it wasn't really that what could help change the whole history for younger people behind us that's, and I, that's like the same thing like with me I'm going there right now because I, I designed adventure parks it's not a playground it's like a mini theme park and I'm I designed my first one. It's called Marty Land. That shit's tight too. <laughs> and then building in Houston. Like Houston has this land in Sugar Land. Like it's in, in between where we grew up. I wanted to build the first one in Houston. That's an interest. And you like you have Black Sand. I read about Black Sand. How does something go from an interest to a viable business? Like you have this interest. Now you're gonna go raise money, go do it. What's that process like? Well, first I, I mean I always start. I'm the type of guy, like, my wife always, t I tell my wife this all the time because I always push her to do stuff. I'm the type of guy that jumps in the water and then be like, oh shit, there's sharks in the water, right? <laughs> so you go. I just jump into it and then I'll start off by drawing it and then I find people, like say this, this playground idea I had. So I'm like, okay, like who builds parks, you know? So I start researching different companies that build parks and I lean on them to develop what my ideas are for those parks and then because it's a lot of, I don't know shit about playing. There's codes, like what? You can't do this, you can't do it. Like I want to build something so cool that it's just like you drive from all over town to go to this free place. And I designed it so that there's libraries on the parks too because I love books. So as you give a book and take a book. You guys both play football and do it well, but you obviously have passions, very deep, strong passions outside of sports and football. What advice would you give to people who are working a job but have other passions? I tell them, look, uh, you know, you know, Brene Browns, I think she's one of the, the greatest people when it comes to- She has great TED Talks. Yeah, to be able to talk about it. And I text her all the time, but talk about bravery. And one of the things that I feel like is important is to live a life without regret. And so to find a way to not look back at your life and be regretful about the moments. And I think that's the thing that I want to take every day is like, Dude, I don't want to regret 
anything that day. And so for people watching this, I would tell them, if you don't want to live with regrets, chase your dreams, chase whatever makes you feel happy. And like my brother said, take those opportunities because when you take chances, you go, it's going to be ups and downs. And that's just a part of life. And I think finding ways to take those opportunities is what's going to have you a fulfilled life. Because at the end of the day, you can't take anything with you. One of the greatest coaches was reading his biography or whatever, and they were saying you couldn't, he couldn't take the wins and losses with him. He could just take the memories. And so, so have great memories. That's all you can take with you. I would say that <clears throat> do you want to spend your entire life building someone else's dreams without ever building your own dreams? Speech. So for me, I feel like unless building that dream is a part of the, your ultimate dream, like you work at a company that's so fulfilling because you get to experience your dream through that company and you love your work like that because it is your dream and you get to live it as a, in the aspect of doing it, working in a different way. You don't have to build it yourself, but I don't want to spend my life using these hands to build up someone else's dreams for the rest of my life. You know what I'm saying? There's so many things I've always wanted to do. And there's this thing on society where people tell you it could only be one thing. And that's because people can't really understand when you want to do multiple things because everyone wants to box you in so that they can understand you. But you don't really need to be understood by anyone but those loved ones close to you. I don't give a fuck if anybody knows me as a person. People misconstrue the idea of me all the time. So last one, last question, because I could talk to you guys all day and I'm sure the audience could listen to you guys all day, but Michael's actually headed to go play in the Pro Bowl. Marty's probably headed to make another uh, short, long, yeah, medium film. Get ready, yeah. I told him yeah, I Marty's said. in the Super. He's on the Super Bowl team. But, but you've also told Marty recently about this is probably your last year, maybe. But forget that. Whenever your last year comes for both of you guys, what's life look for you? What does life look like after football for both of you? For me, it looks no. It looks no different. Be. Besides what I'm already doing, you know, because it just would be, I get to do it more. Like, I've been hurt, right? And I feel guilty sometimes because I get to do the fucking shit I love and do every day. Like, I work from, like, my best hours are from, I work usually from 11 p.m. to 8 a.m. because that's when I like to create. And no one's, there's nobody on Instagram. There's nobody to call you. Nobody bothers me. So I just paint and draw and write, come up with these cool stories and write these books and graphic novels and and apps and stuff. So for me, it's just going to be the same thing, just more enhanced. I get to spend more time just doing something I love so much that I get lost in it. <laughs> what about you, Michael? So for me, it's like I had to compartmentalize life. So I, I did it in four different things. So one is, you know, me being me. So me doing things like talking on TV, doing all that kind of stuff. And then the other one is me being a father, me making sure that I have that time for my wife and kids. And then me too. being a businessman. So I'm the business that I own, the really, all that stuff. And then last, it was not really last, but there's no really order, but then me with the foundation. So it's like all different, four different ways, but finding ways to always be in those that four little lanes and finding, you know, spending time on each one each, each and every day. So just spending time and doing that. I think fulfilling all four of those things is a lifetime of work. That's going to do it for this episode of Needing Dough, the podcast presented by Uninterrupted and Chase. Make sure you keep your ears open for next week's episode. Thank you to everyone who's been supporting us. If you haven't done it yet, please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast wherever you listen to your shows. No need to drop any money. It's free, but it helps others find the show, and that way you'll never miss an episode. Thanks again to our partners for this show, Chase. Visit Chase.com to see what Chase has to offer. Our executive producers are myself, TD St. Matthew Daniel, and Ben Adair. And I'm Andrew Hawkins, a.k.a. Hawk, telling you what a wise man once told me. A penny saved is a penny earned.